You're listening to the Deepening Your Practice podcast with George Haas. For more information, visit www.metagroup.org. That's www.m-e-t-t-a-g-r-o-u-p.org. So welcome, everybody. This is Deepening Your Practice. Deepening Your Practice is intended as an intermediate or advanced class. And what that really means is that I'm not going to offer basic meditation instruction. I expect you already to know that. That being said, if you find that I'm talking about something and you don't understand what I'm talking about, I'm happy to answer any questions. I'm just not going to offer basic instruction. (coughs) We're finishing up um, the uh, development of mindfulness in the body. And uh, so maybe we'll spend another um, two weeks or so on this and then move on to um, uh, contemplation of feeling or Vedna, feeling tone. So what I thought I would do tonight is just to talk a little bit about noting general activities. So this is kind of a practice in life strategy. Um, And then, uh, he has a lot to say about this. Um, And most of it is related to the the structure of the refrain in the Satipatthana Sutta. The various activities that you want to be mindful of. When walking, you should note each and every step as walking, walking, or stepping, stepping, or right, left, or lifting, moving, dropping. When your mindfulness and concentration grow strong, you will be able to note the intention to walk or the intention to move before starting to walk or move. <coughs> so. Uh, in this understanding of karma, intention and action are the two that we want to begin to be sensitive to. Oops, sorry. One of the things about uh, neuroscience and its uh, current demonstrations is that uh, we know that the intention uh, and the, the action precedes consciousness. Uh, that actually the consciousness is after all of that happens. Um, Whereas in in the traditional meditation texts, they talk about it as knowing the intention and then taking the action. But we have demonstrated with the current uh, technologies that we have that before you're even aware of being thirsty to reach for the glass to take a drink, that the impulse has already happened. Um, that uh, what we didn't know um, before the, they had machines that were capable of testing brain time is that consciousness itself is a half a second behind what actually happens. Uh, and so um, we're stuck with this conundrum of the now knowing that all of these things happen unconsciously and that we're informed after the decision-making process has already happened. So in some sense, how do we make sense of the, this 
view, and so I think that uh, really what it means is that uh, when we know, where we have the moment of examining uh, what our intention is, even though the uh, unconscious processes have already evolved and formed the decision-making. In a contemporary neuroscience point of view, the conscious mind is really there to veto this automatic unconscious process. That if you're mindful, if you pay attention to it, then you can stop the action from happening, but you don't actually uh, create the intention in consciousness. Is that making sense? So it doesn't, in, in that sense, contradict the, this basic understanding of mindfulness. And what, what is really being talked about here in terms of this constant noting of all things is a constant attention to our experience of the present moment, even though our conscious experience of the present moment is a half a second behind what actually happens. You may also be able to come out of the selfing experience and just uh, move into a kind of spontaneous response to the uh, present moment and not need to filter so much the, uh, the actions that you take through uh, the self or through consciousness. You notice when you have a kind of self-conscious experience that there's a delay in your response and this is really to allow you to be consciously aware of what your response is in any given moment. And so another way of talking about this is pulling back from the delay and just moving spontaneously. Uh, Shinzen calls it auto uh, walking or auto talking or any of these uh, things that uh, without a, um, the inhibition of previewing what your action is going to be come to rely on this uh, sense of no self and just spontaneously manifest the subconscious in that sense. So is that a state of no self, or is that the state of no self that's or a state of self that's being generated by no self? Um, I would say that if you're if you're spontaneous and in the moment, and that you you don't delay the activity by the half a second necessary to preview it, that you're coming from a place of no self. It's like when you take photographs and you don't remember. Right. Um, my friend uh, Jimmy McCord, who is a writer, said it the best that, that I've ever heard it said, which is, uh, how do I know what I think until I hear what I say? That level mm -hmm. of spontaneity. Um, if you train yourself so that your intention is wholesome, then you're more willing to respond in the present moment completely spontaneously than if you're unsure of what your, what your response is going to be, or you're protective of the image of yourself that you're cultivating, because then you'll want to preview your response so that you can calculate what the reaction to it might be, even though you can't know, really. Um, 
listening deeply to what somebody says and then responding and hearing in the present moment at the same time that the other person is hearing it but your response is, is, is what I mean by this place of spontaneity um, so that you don't limit your, your natural expression by previewing it. So what that takes, of course, is the, the practice of doing it so that you can develop a sense of safety in doing it. That if, you, if, you're un, if the way that you are within yourself is unpredictable or unknown, it can be uh, fearful uh, to allow that kind of process to happen and so you would naturally inhibit it. So uh, another way to talk about it is th that if you get used to pushing into a place of authentically responding to the present moment, then you can rely more on it. And if you're used to uh, an inauthentic response to the, the conditions of the present moment, then you would be less willing to rely on it because you would want to shape your response based on the outcome that you would like to have from making the expression. So this movement into a, a, just an authentic response, particularly if you've conditioned yourself to respond in a kind way to the circumstances of the present moment, then you have more confidence in, in the way that your response is done. Um, there was a book out several years ago called Blink. I don't know if any of you saw it. Um, <coughs> But in the studies that they showed, coming from that place of spontaneity and not filtering it through the self tended to produce a much better outcome in terms of personal happiness because you were more authentic in the expression of what you actually wanted. Um, also, the whole body-mind is engaged in the activity rather than just the limited nature of, of the conscious mind. If you compare it just on a data set, the whole process of the body-mind processes at 11 million bits per second and the conscious mind processes at 16 bits. So you have the whole capacity of 11 million bits to um, uh, formulate a response to the conditions of the present moment or you can use 16 bits. Uh -huh. Wasn't there something about it that was hierarchical though? Like where you're in that situation where you're the lower levels of brain or the, you know, the reptilian kind of thing is, is more active in the spontaneous response versus running it through the cortical brain so that the decisions you're making could be based on well they're instinctual but you know they may not be the best decisions like, wasn't there some there's something about that that was oh in, not some in, controversy about oh what are those decisions or those instincts being you know actually at a level where they're not being process cortically and therefore maybe harmful. Oh, I don't, it's certainly not in the Blink book, but um, I don't know much beyond I, it that. It may not have been in the book, but I thought I saw something about that, that there was some concern about, you know, do, using animal instincts as those decisions because those more rapid thoughts are happening at the lower level. Right. Um, I mean, that's more neuroscience, but I don't know. Um, my understanding was that the, the, the power to crunch 16 bits versus the power to crunch 11 million bits, uh, the, the amount of time it would take you to think through uh, in, a, in a conscious way is so vastly limited 
compared to the, the whole body mind doing it, that that seemed to produce a better outcome. I think it's also complicated because you're depending on solidity to define what a good decision is. And so it's just like what a good decision might be for you and that moment may not be a good decision from somebody else's perspective that's being affected. Like, you know, it's, I feel like it's kind of Right. And I think more to just stay on actually the point that I'm trying to make is that this movement toward authentic present moment awareness rather than through this inhibition of filtering it to try and calculate what the, the outcome might be since the, uh, you know, you, you do make intention and action. So how do you view the intention that you make prior to taking the action? For instance, if you're sitting in meditation and you get caught up in thinking, at some point you made the intention to think about something else and let go of the object of meditation. Can you begin to sensitize yourself to that moment when you decide to focus away from the object of meditation? Can you be present in that, that just at the moment when you decide, oh, I'll, I'll grab onto this thought and think that rather than stay with the object of meditation? So that really this embedding in the present moment and watching that flow of experience as it goes by and before taking any action, making the intention or uh, since you make the intention anyway, being just being aware that you're making the intention for the action. Because when we get mindless, uh, we don't pay attention to that. We're just in a way responding to the conditioning, right? The automatic conditioning, that automatic process that happens. Um, at that point you will come to personally and thoroughly understand that the intention to walk occurs first and that as a result of this intention the sequence of movements happens and that as these movements happen everywhere all the physical phenomena that are called body move in separate little movements arising and disappearing one after the other. This is called walking and this is referred to as the following. When walking, a bhikkhu understands, I am walking. One understands that the intention to walk arises. This intention causes movement to arise. This movement causes um, uh, uh, intimation to arise. Because these movements happen everywhere, all the physical phenomena that are called body move in separate little movements to the intended place. This is called walking. Do you, when you take a step, um, instruct each of the sequence of muscles that need to uh, move to make a step? So this is another one of these conundrums um, that really we learn to walk and the habit of walking is embedded in procedural memory. So if we make an intention to walk, then the intention triggers the procedural memory to walk the body rather than us intending each of these um, movements. So um, I tend to begin to think of this as a um, metaphor rather than an actual description uh, and that tends to be my bias toward uh, science and contemporary neuroscience rather than the tradition of uh, 
practice that's come over time. This is not common knowledge. Those who have never practiced in this way or gained any knowledge uh, may be dubious about the instruction when walking a bhikkhu understands I am walking. I will explain this point here in accordance with the commentary. One may wonder, doesn't a dog or a fox understand it is walking when it is walking? This is true. But the Buddha was not uh, at all referring to this kind of common knowledge. Actually, dogs, foxes, and ordinary people do not know their intention to walk or the movement that happens in separate little movements. They can't distinguish between mind and body, and they do not understand that intention causes the movement to happen. So I wonder sometimes, uh, with the traditional view of, of human domination over animals, whether this is true or not, since we haven't got a good way of communicating um, with uh, dogs or foxes. Um, and um, it, uh, we, we know now, of course, that consciousness is widely spread throughout uh, mammals uh, and in birds and in other animals, whereas um, even uh, 50 years ago, this that you might have had a vigorous argument about whether uh, these beings were sentient or not. Um, they, they did a test um, with all sorts of different animals. They put a red spot on the nose or face of the animal and then they showed them a mirror and some animals wiped the spot off and some didn't. For instance, crows and ravens, when seeing a red spot on their beak just wiped it off. Um, all sorts of creatures wiped it off. But nobody would have thought that uh, crows or ravens up until that time were self-aware, right? So that uh, I don't know that these traditional views, which I don't tend to support uh, that much, um, make sense to me. Um, if you don't pay attention to the awareness of the present moment, then you may not notice that there is a present moment and there's thinking, and that they're not the same. You may think that you're actually engaged in the activity of experiencing the present moment when you're caught up in thinking, and the, the things of the present moment pass you by unnoticed because of that. You may not notice that your attention is very narrow and very selective, um, these, these recent studies have uh, shown um, that uh, it's easy to miss things. For instance, um, motorcycles with one headlight are nine times more likely to be in an, in an accident than motorcycles with two lights. Um, and that the most common response to a driver running a motorcycle off the road is they weren't there. And this is not an inaccurate statement. It's particularly true of commuter routes that uh, it turns out that we don't always use uh, a visual experience of the present moment because it takes a lot of calories to produce a visual image that you could be using an image that you generated weeks ago and not be able to tell the difference if you're not present. And weeks ago, there was no motorcycle in the, ne the lane next to you and so you're looking at an image from weeks ago and you don't see that the motorcycle is next to you and you just run them off 
the road when you change lanes. Is that making sense? Um, <coughs> the more narrow your focus, the less awareness you have of the things around you. There was a, 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 a case of a, I think it was a Philadelphia cop. Uh, they were, a couple of cops were pursuing somebody and one of the cops was shot and fell on the ground at the base of a wall and another cop ran up and jumped over the wall without stopping to assist the cop who was wounded and he was drummed out of the force for doing that but he maintained that he didn't see the officer that was down because he was so focused on the person that he was chasing and it was later demonstrated that actually it was perfectly possible not to see somebody be, because of your narrow focus. So what I think we're really beginning to talk about here in terms of this uh, attention in meditation is this awareness of the present moment and what's happening and the difference between being caught up in memory or being caught up in the mind projecting the future or being so narrowly focused that we miss uh, what else is around us. And part of that is this intention. So we've been talking a lot about mind and the aspect of the sensing experience of mind. Uh, if we talked about the conventional five senses that are very ordinary in Western thought, in seeing you see light, in hearing you hear sound, in tasting you taste something that you uh, put in your mouth and smelling uh, some aspect, some particle that you that reacts to your senses, activates the the capacity to smell. But when we would talk about uh, the 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 sensing aspect of mind, what does that mean? As opposed to what you make out of the sensing experience of the mind. So what we're noticing in mind uh, is that the sensing capacity of the mind notices the sequence of other sensing experiences. So the capacity to string together a flow of different sensing experiences is the aspect of the mind sensing. Otherwise you'd have a discrete moment of seeing which didn't connect to another moment of seeing or another moment of hearing or smelling or touching in the body. And then the other aspect of the sensing experience of mind is where the attention of the mind is drawn. Where uh, the, uh, your focus is on one object and then in the next moment it's on the next object and in the next moment it's on the next object. And that is the capacity of mind. And you can notice in that the intention of the mind in focusing on one sensing experience or another. And so in the present moment, as we notice this combination of sensing experiences, that aspect of mind, that aspect of intention is there. And you can watch in meditation the flow of that intention as the mind is drawn from one sensing experience to another. You have a sense of volition in that but then we know from neuroscience that the, the intention to focus on something that we think is being caused by a conscious choice, actually the choice precedes conscious awareness that we've made the choice. So 
so that that's kind of an interesting conundrum. We know after we've made the choice, consciously, the whole process of thinking that we're making the choice, so that it isn't from that moment of consciousness that we've made the choice, that we've made the choice, it's actually preceded that moment. Is that making sense? So it's an interesting conundrum between the traditional view of this and actually what the, the current neuroscience might inform us. Of course, the problem with contemporary science is that it's constantly changing. And so maybe the interpretation will realign with this at some point, but it, isn't, it doesn't seem to be so much in alignment. Um, so, in terms of um, understanding practice, um, maybe I'll read a little bit more. When an ordinary, when ordinary people occasionally know they are walking, they perceive it as an individual person who is walking, and they take that person to be unchanging. Uh, they think that they are the same person before, during, and after the walk. Even after walking a hundred miles, they think uh, they are certainly the same individual uh, that they were before they left, even after having arrived at a different location. They think that they stay exactly the same as before. One cannot abandon the wrong view of being of a being, rid uh, oneself of attachment to such a view, or, nor produce the insight knowledges with such an ordinary understanding. Making this kind of understanding the object of one's meditation or meditating based on such an understanding does not amount to practicing insight. Are you following on this? This is then an examination of the three characteristics that self is an experience that arises based on the conditions in the present moment and each time the conditions of the present moment change the arising of self in relationship to them is a different self, self than the one that had arisen before so this is a, a movement into the understanding of the three characteristics um, the right view is that everything is dependent on the conditions of the present moment and that one need be present for the experience of the present moment in order to see the relationship between the arising of these three characteristics, anatta, nicca, and dukkha, in relationship to the conditions of the present moment. Does that make sense? So getting to... Um, the idea that if you're able to identify all, or if you're able to be present with all three, then when this all arises, you don't have to identify with it? Well, you see that the self arises based on the conditions of the present moment, and then that becomes uh, actually, there is no continuous self-experience. It is something that arises in each of the moments. Nothing lasts. Everything arises and passes. Every sensing experience in every sense gate arises and passes. So eventually, it, if you're conditioning your mind to understand things differently, when the self arises, it won't necessarily think the same thing that it would have it wouldn't see itself as being the same. Right. Oh, that's interesting. Um, 
So you notice that a sense of self arises when you're in a one-on-one -on -one relationship with somebody, and then a different kind of self can arise when you're in a small group. And a different sense of self arises in each of the small groups that it might arise in. And then a different sense of self arises in a, in a large group. Each of these is a sense of self or an experience of self, but none of them are the same because the conditions that underlie the arising of them is different. And so rather than becoming self-conscious of the variation in the experiences of self, one can simply allow these uh, different self-experiences to arise in each of these moments uh, based on those, uh, the conditions of the present moment. Then we have the, this... So we have the... How do we know any of this is happening, right? We know it through the experience of the sensings, including mind. Or, and in mind is the knowing of the succession of individual sensing experiences and also the, this intention of where uh, our uh, sensitivity is focused or our awareness is focused. Is that making sense? So then, how would you practice this? Um, I would uh, suggest that we do some see, hear, feel. So this dividing up into basic the sensory categories and pay attention to the flow of the, the sensing experiences. So sensitivity to the, the interrelationship between the basic five senses and then also the sensing aspect of mind. So we'll look at the um, basic see, hear, feel, and then we'll add to it the, the, the succession of sensing experiences as they arise, which is an attention on mind, and then we'll spend the, the majority of the period of meditation focused on this intention. If you simply allow the body-mind to choose where your attention goes, then you might notice also an insight into self and no-self. If you're not choosing where your attention goes, who's choosing it? And yet you notice that the mind is selecting where it, it focuses. Uh, if you wanted to add to that the, a notion of impermanence, you would notice that all, all of the sensing experiences that the mind notices arise and pass. Nothing persists. And then if you wanted to focus on the unsatisfactoriness, maybe the body is painful and that's unpleasant, or maybe there's a pleasant experience that arises and that it ends and that creates a sense of maybe a clinging to wanting the, the pleasant thing to continue and aversion to not wanting the thing that's unpleasant. And I will <coughs> point out those possibilities. George, for mind, we're doing wanting, not wanting, unconscious? Or no, no um, I don't really have a label for it. Uh, we're just going to do a basic see, hear, feel. <coughs> And then we'll add a layer of investigation on top of that, which is noticing the, the succession of the arising of see, hear, or feel. And then uh, adding on to that this, wa just watching 
where your attention is drawn in each of the choices of see, hear, feel. What I notice is when the mind is concentrated, the, the movement of the intention is fluid, like a liquid, like a viscous liquid. It moves slowly. And when the mind is scattered, it jumps, uh, jumps around. So you may also notice this. The mind begins to concentrate that the, the intention or this movement uh, is, is um, more fluid than jumpy. Was that longer than you usually do it for? It was 40 minutes. Okay. Did it seem longer? Yeah, I think anything past 30 minutes for me, I instantly like start to lose it. Okay. It becomes incredibly difficult. Mm. What do you notice? Anxiety, like uh, feelings of anxiety. Uh, not and not in like um, like a. I'm talking to my psychologist about it, but like a sensational, like essential feeling of this feels really uncomfortable. Mm -hmm. um, and then I get completely distracted and I uh, lose, um, lose uh, the intention of the meditation, I suppose. Mm -hmm. Your concentration goes. Mm, yeah. Have you tried, say, switching then to metta or something like that? No. Well, I mean, I suppose like uh, I, I, I would consider doing it, but then of course I would feel as though I was not doing the meditation. So I would consider that like a, a cop out, and oh. then it would cause me anxiety, which would then take me back to trying to do the original meditation. Okay. Well, how about if I give it to you as an intentional instruction? That when your concentration blows, just go to metta. Yeah. That's what I do. Yeah. Just once you reach uh, that kind of brooding for yourself, you tend to let, even once metta goes away, you're allowed to uh, reach that selfless state, which is just... You know, it's uh, pleasant because you see the ego dissolve. The ego is horrible. <laughs> you know? Trapped in the sense of self. Yeah. It's also kind of cool sometimes to try to just like allow yourself to experience what it is to not, to, to have a blown out concentration. Mm -hmm. Equanimity with no concentration. Yeah, and just kind of let it, just see what that feels like for a while, and then kind of, usually it comes back if you just kind of stop thinking. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it's interesting to um, build the muscle of holding attention, because you want to, holding attention in a flow state seems so counterproductive. Right, because you feel like you're wanting to not hold on so you can observe it, but then once you hold on to it and then use meta to just allow yourself to hold on to it, then it all just kind of drops away. 
you go, it feels very comforting. And that's when you notice that beyond conditioning, most of us, or I'm sure all of us as sentient beings have good intention. You see it naturally arise because there is no condition of anything of your own past mm-hmm. it goes away. You know, and then that's where that that's where you can um, identify a state of meta out of that. Once you reach that point, then it just becomes consistently pleasant, and then you can always bring that back. So it's just over time, really, of concentrating. It's like surfing. Mm-hmm. Once you catch the wave, you can just fall down the wave. Yeah. And then you fall down eventually. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, land on the beach. I believe that's called dirty lickings. <laughs> I think the best thing is that, that, you know, when we talk about like intention or wise intention it's just it's very natural dude like you just realize how very natural that state of mind is once you let go of again that half second of trying to control or determine self you know it becomes where the half second is almost like it's like a restrictor Mm -hmm. you know to what's really happening and then um when we talk about you know that's the thing about Understanding impermanence, once you understand impermanence, everything else just dissolves. It's pretty rad. It's kind of like looking at a comb from a distance, looks solid up close. It's right. Many teeth, many empty spots, you know? And then once you start again, it's gaining that space and then allowing the pleasant to almost take over, then suddenly half of your time is pleasant, half of it's the ego, and then it stretches even more. Mm. Uh, yeah, the being trapped in self is like a pressure cooker of suffering. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> the more you can get out of it, the less you suffer. And then there's this reversal that happens where you're out of it, and then you watch it arise and pass from the place of awareness where there's no suffering. I found it difficult to go from. Um, like this, the seeing, hearing, feeling, kind of like how you were leading at the beginning was a very natural kind of flowy. Like I'd go from a concentrated seeing to just to feeling and then, you know, kind of revolute. But uh, trying to, trying to sort of be aware and note the intention behind that switch, like between the, if I'm seeing and I feel like a bodily impulse or a sensation arise, my attention goes to the sensation. Mm-hmm. My attention goes to the sensation, but I was finding it really hard to find the intention to go to that sensation. Right. That's where it becomes almost psychedelic. Um, and that's where, well, that's where I felt actually very unsettling because um, it's like it's easy to observe the like the fundamental um, sensations, our five sensations, but then to question as to where that stems from and why is like for sure is far out. 
think we have a, a very natural, um, I've been thinking about it, we have a very natural uh, trauma assessment, right, for our uh, fight and flight, our net, like our natural sense, like the more that we trust that we can sit if we know that we're safe. So you'll see like, you know, see and then the mind will just go try to feel, like it'll catch the air, and then suddenly if you go feel, 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 you suddenly feel more and more and more of the air, and then suddenly you hear something. And then your mind will go that way, and suddenly it gets louder, and then you'll see something. And, it, and it's almost as if the body and the space is trying to always do a threat assessment, like consistent natural threat assessment. So the more you feel safe in that, that's when we're talking about reptilian mind or anything, you know, what you do is the less sense of self and the more you trust. If you were in an unsafe situation, you will get out of it, naturally. You don't have to fight it, you know, your body will naturally fight it. So I think we're always in a state of natural threat assessment from going back thousands, millions of years, you know, and we're just understanding that watching our bodies assess threat catches a breeze and it's like well what is that breeze is it an animal no it's just a breeze okay listen over here what's over here you know and then, and we're doing that now yeah you know and it's happening it's just that there hasn't been sen sensitivity to the process of it happening mm -hmm. and that's what this real this investigation is really about sensitizing yourself to these processes that are happening anyway would you use the, the words choice and intention interchangeably? Um, intention is the English translation of the Pali word for this. Mm -hmm. So um, that, that there is an, an inclination from one to the next, mm -hmm. that it's just not random. Mm -hmm. um, so however you wanted to parse it would be, be okay. What's the Pali word? Uh, I, I don't know it. Um, off the top of my head. Um, the mind, so one of the things that we could also do in terms of practice is intentionally inhibit the flow. So you notice the mind is in see space and then rather than allowing it to go to hear space you maintain that so that's the overriding of it. Um, but all of that really uh, precedes consciousness. So I tend to prefer to just explore the movement of it, watching how the mind is drawn, what is it drawn to. Um, I noticed, for instance, that my mind would stay for long, long periods of time on visual activity, internal visual activity, but then there would be this pull into the sound of the fan. I don't like fan noise, so it's, it's an irritating sound to me. Um, so, it, and then it would be there, or then, then, did you notice that there were dogs barking? Well, there's also the quite um, audible clicks from the ceiling. Right, the expansion and contraction. Yeah. Or the cooling down of the ceiling so it cracks and pops. Yeah. That could be quite a sudden shift, but that would be again what you were saying, threat assessment yeah. is sudden. And then other than that, it's interest that maybe directs where your attention goes, or a pleasantness that, or unpleasantness. Yeah. 
I mean, even the bell can yeah. give you a Star Wars response at the end if you're in flow. Right. You know, your body's kind of like, wait, what just happened? Uh, sometimes I can feel, hear, like if hearing and your movement match up perfectly, you can hear when someone picks up the ringer. And then other times when you're over here think, like seeing, you don't see the pickup of the ringer and then suddenly it's like, whoa. You know, it's just, yeah. it's almost as if you, you have to really line that up where your mind and what's really happening. And I think that's where. And I'm really trying not to make any sound so it'll be as surprising as possible. You <laughs> <laughs> should get a blowhorn for this time. <laughs> Do you hear me waving to keep the lights on? Oh, yeah. <laughs> you can see that shit. I never seem to be able to catch that one on time. It goes. I never notice it going, but I notice it coming back. Uh, this is interesting. Good. Uh, thank you all for coming. This is Deepening Your Practice. I'm always advocating ways to deepen your practice. One way is to have a daily practice, and so uh, if you don't really have a daily practice, the, I do morning meditation every morning at 7.30, which is a live conference call you can call up. Um, I don't have any flyers with me on it now, but you can find it on my website, metagroup.org. Also, we're having a winter retreat coming up in December. I know it's a, a few months away, but it, it does usually take some planning to get to go on a retreat, and so it's, it's uh, a 10-day or 11-day retreat, 10-night retreat, which is up in the Sierra Nevada at the Seven Circles uh, Retreat Center, which is actually quite a lovely place. Uh, it's right at the snow line, so sometimes there's snow and sometimes there isn't. So that also sounds exciting to me. It'll be a little bit cold. Get up into the mountains. Anyway, I have flyers out there for that. There's some bracelets out there if you want, need a transitionary object to, to take around with you. Uh, the classes here are offered on a Donna basis. The suggested Donna here is $20, so I can take credit cards here or there's a bowl out there for cash. The other thing I would also mention that I do is one-on-one -on -one mentoring, so that if you, if you want to have a dialogue w with me as a teacher, you can do that. You um, would sign up and then we would have Skype sessions either weekly or every other week and discuss your practice. That's something to do. Also, uh, information about that is on my website. Thank you.